The scripture reading for today can be found in your worship guide, or you can follow along in your Bibles. It's from Revelation chapter 2, verses 1 through 7. To the angel of the church in Ephesus write, The words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks among the seven golden lampstands. I know your works, your toil, and your patient endurance, and how you cannot bear with those who are evil, but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not, and found them to be false. I know you are enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake, and you have not grown weary. But I have this against you, that you have abandoned the love you had at first. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, repent, and do the works you did at first. If not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place, unless you repent. Yet this you have. You hate the works of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will grant to eat the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. This is the word of the Lord. It is absolutely true and given to us in love. Well, good morning. As many of you know, <coughs> I appreciate a beautiful yard, but I do not have a green thumb at all. And so when I bought my first house here in Greensboro, I was talking to one of my coworkers who is great at gardening, and she said, Todd, you need to plant some flowers in your backyard. And I was like, okay, um, I need some help. Let's go to Lowe's. And so we did. And I proceeded to plant some annuals in the backyard. And much to my dismay, or not dismay, much to my surprise, uh, they actually bloomed. And they were beautiful. And they had all these flowers all over them. And I was so excited. And I went back and told her. And she was excited. And then kind of weeks passed by. And I noticed, even though I was watering the plants, that they started to turn brown and the flowers started to to dry up and I was like oh my gosh my plants are all dying this is this is awful so I went and talked to my coworker and said what do I do and she she kind of laughed she said Todd you have to deadhead them and I was like what do you mean deadhead them and she's like you need to go and break off where the bloom is and deadhead them and I was like I have no idea what you're talking about and she's like I'll be at your house this afternoon so she came and she proceeded to deadhead all of, of my flowers. And so all of them were just now green um, and weren't very pretty. And she just said, trust me, they'll bloom again. And so a week went by, nothing. Two weeks went by, and eventually new blossoms, new flowers. And they were beautiful again. Now, you're wondering why in the world am I talking about deadheading and I tell you this story because in order for us to grow in beauty as sons and daughters of God, we too need to be deadheaded. Lent is a season in which we invite the Holy Spirit to come into our lives and to prune us. To prune whether it's sin in our lives, whether it's patterns that are unhealthy in our lives, for him to prune those, to break those off, so that more beauty might blossom. Now, over the next five weeks of Lent, we are going to be looking at five of the seven letters in the book of Revelation. Now, this morning, we begin by looking at the letter of, at the church in Ephesus. 
And I want us to do two things this morning. And first is, I want us to walk through the passage line by line. And as I studied it this week, I've never, ever taken a deep dive into these letters. I was amazed at all the things that I didn't know and the things that I learned. And I want us together to kind of dig into the passage. And then secondly, I want us to look at the implications for for us today in, in 2020. So let me pray for us and then we will dive in. Holy Spirit. We need you to come. Lord, this ancient text is alive. And so we pray that you would use it to encourage us. To teach us. To challenge us. To prune our hearts and our minds. So that we might be more like you, Jesus. And we pray this in your powerful name. Amen. So the first thing that I want us to do, and you can look at your bulletin or you can look at the screens above or you, or you can open your Bible to Revelation 2, is I want us to walk through these seven verses. And it's helpful for us to have a context for these verses and the origins of the church at Ephesus. Now, Ephesus itself was situated on the western edge of Asia Minor, on the Aegean Sea. And because of its strategic location, it was a crossroads of civilization. Politically, it had become the de facto capital of the province. And the Roman governor actually resided there. It was a trade center for Asia Minor. And some referred to it as the vanity fair of the ancient world. Now, religiously, it was a dark, dark city. Many of the residents worshipped the fertility goddess called Artemis. The Romans referred to her as Diana. And in the center of the city, the people had erected a huge temple to Artemis, where over a thousand priests and priestesses would gather to lead the people in worship. And they also happened to help facilitate prostitution in the temple. Now, the temple was also a bank for the wealthy in Ephesus. And at the same time, it served as an asylum for fleeing criminals. Um, I'm not quite sure if I would have taken my money to a bank knowing that the criminals were also going to be there, but they did. And somehow or another, it all worked out. The city was about as pagan of a city that you might find in the ancient Near East. There were followers of Artemis. There were nominal and devout Jews, and there were many whose gods were intellectualism, consumerism, and pure hedonism. Yet, as we read in Acts 18, that in the midst of this darkness, God sent Paul, Priscilla, and Aquila to speak the truth of the gospel. They were sent there to be salt and light. And upon arriving in Ephesus, Paul, as was his custom, found the synagogue. And he went there and began to profess the good news of Jesus. Now, we're not told whether or not any of the folks that were listening professed faith in Christ, but we do learn that they were intrigued with Paul, so much so that they begged him to stay in Ephesus. 
But Paul, being led by the Holy Spirit, said no and decided to leave. Now, after he departed, we, we see that Priscilla and Aquila, they continue to preach the gospel. And we read that a Jew named Apollos came to Ephesus, and Apollos was a disciple of John the Baptist. He was an eloquent man, competent in scriptures, and had been instructed in the way of the Lord. He was fervently sharing the good news, but as it turns out, because he had been baptized by John, he didn't fully understand the truth of the gospel. And I love these women, Priscilla and Aquila, they stepped in and they spoke the truth to Apollos. And they explained to him the way of God more accurately. And in turn, he gladly received the truth and grew in faith and trust in the Lord. Then after a period of time led by the Spirit, Luke tells us in Acts that Paul returned to Ephesus where he encounters more disciples of John. And like Apollos, they meant well and they understood the scriptures, but they had no understanding of the Holy Spirit. And so Paul shares the truth of the gospel and they receive the Holy Spirit and they begin to walk as disciples of Christ. Paul spent two years in Ephesus ministering amongst the people, raising up a church, a church that had been begun with Jews and disciples of John and pagans. And during this time, the Holy Spirit moved among a very diverse group of men and women and gave birth to a church. And we know from Acts the love that Paul had for the people of Ephesus because when he was leaving, he gathered the elders there and it's such a touching scene and he and the elders just wept, knowing that they would not see one another until Christ returned. And we also know that the church continued to grow and thrive because Paul wrote one of the most famous and popular letters, the letter Ephesians, to the churches in Ephesus. And Paul commends them for their, their continued growth in Christ. He applauds them for their deep, deep deep love of Jesus. He commends them for their unity, their love and care for one another, and their willingness to stand up for truth in such an incredibly dark society. So based on such a rich history, one would expect this letter found in Revelation would be full of commendation. Full of praise. But as we look at the letter, we see that it's not just condemnation, but it's a letter with a verdict. A letter that is basically saying, You guys have missed the mark. And look at, at verse 2, verse 1a. To the angel of the church in Ephesus, write. Now, as I began studying that, I was like, okay, I've never heard a letter being directed or sent to the angel of the church, which then caused me to question what's going on here. 
Now, there's two theories about why this letter is addressed to the angel of the church. One is that addressing an angel involves addressing the human or humans whose representative that angel is. This assumes that angels are assigned to watch over, protect, and represent churches. Now, I don't know about you, that would be kind of cool if we had an angel that was just specifically here for Hope Chapel to watch over us. But that's one theory. A second theory, a school of thought, is that angels are synonymous with the faithful witnesses of God in Ephesus. And similar to how Paul addresses the Ephesians as saints, the author addresses the church in Ephesus as an angel. Now, both of these theories have merit. And this is what I love about Scripture. It's really a mystery. We don't know. You can, you can either choose to believe that they wrote to the author an angel that was representative of the church, or you can choose to believe that it was synonymous with the people. But what's most important and what we know from history is that the people of Ephesus read this letter. In fact, these seven letters were not only distributed to each church, they were circulated. So every letter that we're going to look at was read by the people in Ephesus. And so, as we move on to verse 1b, we're introduced to the speaker. The author of the letter. It says, the words of him who hold the seven stars in his right hand, who walks among the seven golden lampstands. Now, again, if you can get any more obtuse, who in the world is the speaker? Who's the author? Now, to, to get the answer and to have, with surety, we need to look back at Revelation 1, verses 17b through 20. Because in those verses, Jesus says this, Fear not, I am the first and the last and the living one. I died, and behold, I am alive forevermore. And I have the keys of death and Hades. Write, therefore, the things that you have seen, those that are and those that are to take place after this. As for the mystery of the seven stars that you saw in my right hand and the seven golden lampstands, the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches, and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. From these verses, we learn that Jesus is the author of the letter to the church in Ephesus. The seven are the seven angels and the seven churches are represented by lampstands. And so Jesus is speaking directly to the church in Ephesus. And as he does, he shares intimate knowledge of what's going on in the hearts of the men and women in the church. If you look at verses 2 through 3, Jesus says, I know your works, your toil, and your patient endurance, and how you cannot bear with those who are evil, but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not, and found them to be false. I know you are enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake, and you have not grown weary. In these verses, Jesus is commending the church in Ephesus. 
And as I mentioned earlier, the church was made up of a diverse group of people. Disciples of John. You had Jews. And then you had pagans. You had people who were worshiping Artemis who had given their lives to Christ. And what was happening is for some of those people, they were taking their faith tradition and they were taking the gospel and they were assimilating the two. And so they were basically preaching that not only did you need to believe in Christ, you might need to go and lay a sacrifice at the temple of Artemis. Now, these were people not outside the church. They were people inside the church. And those people were trying to persuade the others in the church that in order to follow as an obedient follower of Christ, you needed to do these additional things. And in this letter, Jesus commends the faithful in Ephesus for their discernment as they tested the false apostles and they called them out on their lies. Jesus says, you found them to be false and you remain faithful to the truth. Jesus is saying, well done, church. Way to go for for calling out those who are trying to deceive, deceive you and lead you away from the truth. So at this point, if if you were reading and you're in the church of Ephesus, you're probably feeling pretty good about yourself. You're high fiving one another. But then we get to verse four. And Jesus says this to the church. But I have this against you. That you have abandoned the love that you had at first. I mean, think about this. We just talked about the history of the church. Paul wrote the letter to the Ephesians and it's full of how deeply, deeply the followers of Christ there loved Jesus. And here, Jesus says to them, you have abandoned the love you had at first. Now, when I first read this, I have to admit that I interpreted it that the Ephesians had had really just completely stopped loving God. But after doing some more studying, I've talked with a pastor friend of mine. I believe what Jesus is saying in his complaint against the church is that their love for God is neither hot nor cold. Christ has become so common place to them that they've become bored. With him. Their hearts have become apathetic toward him. One commentator says it this way first indicates that they still loved, but with a quality and an intensity unlike that of their initial love for Christ. You know, on one level, their minds were able to discern information from misinformation. And they still loved Christ. But their hearts had grown kind of dark and their affections had become dull toward Jesus. And, and you know, you, you couldn't blame Christ at this point out of pure frustration. All that he had done. All the wonderful miracles that he had done in Ephesus. 
to just say to the Ephesians, I'm done with you. But what we see in verses 5 through 7 is amazing grace. You look in verse 5, after he's given this verdict, he says, Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen. Repent and do the works you did at first. If not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. A father disciplines the children that he loves. Jesus here, he uses three imperatives, pleading with the church. He says, remember, remember when you first came to Christ and the joy that was in your heart. Repent of being bored with him and do continue to do the practices of worship and scripture memory. He is calling them to remember. He's calling them to remember the joy of receiving their salvation. To remember what it was like to feel Jesus' love for the first time. To remember what it was like to be seized by such a great affection. And the joy that was overflowing, reciprocating back to Christ. To repent. Christ is a jealous God. And he is jealous for the affections of his people. And he sends this letter to them, not to punish them or to curse them, but to do everything he can to get them to love him again. Not just with their heads, but to love him with their hearts. And, and as I think about the great lengths that Christ goes to in order to win their affections back, I couldn't help but think of one of my favorite movies, Life as a House. In that movie, the father is estranged from his son, and he learns that he has terminal cancer. He only has three or four months to live. And so he goes to his ex-wife's house where his son is residing and says to his son, Sam, Sam, you're going to come live with me for the summer. Now, Sam didn't want to have anything to do with his dad. And so he put up a huge fight, and the dad didn't tell him that he had cancer, but he said, you're going to come with me, and we're going to build a house. Because that was one of the father's dreams. Uh, uh, there was this cliff overlooking the beach. It was beautiful to tear down this little shack that his dad had given him and to build a new house. And Sam was furious. He didn't want to go, but he had no choice. He was a teenager, and so they go. Now, the first couple of days were rough. Sam didn't want to have anything to do with his dad, so his dad continued to kind of put the foundation up. But then as weeks passed, Sam found himself actually enjoying his dad. And you could see just his demeanor changing toward him. And that continued over the next month, month and a half. But then Sam noticed that his dad was taking a lot of medicine. Didn't know why. And so he confronted his dad about that. And his dad said to him, Son, I've got an operable brain tumor. And Sam was like, What do you, what do you mean that, that you've got an operable brain tumor? He says, Son, I've got cancer and I'm going to die. And Sam just begins to weep. 
what do you mean you're going to die? He goes, son, I'm going to die and I brought you here so I could spend these last three months with you. And Sam, just full weeping, was like, I can't believe you did that. I can't believe you tricked me to come here to spend the summer with you to get me to like you. And the father turns to him and says, Sam, I didn't want you to like me. I wanted you to love me. And Sam, bursting out with tears, said, well, congratulations, it worked. In this letter, Jesus is saying to the church in Ephesus, I don't want you just to like me. I want you to love me. He's calling the church to repent of their boredom with him, of their apathy toward him. He's calling them to stir their hearts again with affection for Christ. And he closes the letter in verses 6 and 7, commending them. Commending them for their hatred of the practices of the Nicolaitans who were engaged in the temple prostitution. And he ends by reminding them that as he has overcome the world, conquering sin and death and bringing restoration to the world, they too are overcomers. And it shall be granted to them to eat of the tree of life, which is the paradise of God. And so... There's a lot packed in to these seven verses. The question for us this morning is what is the implications for you and for me and for Hope Chapel today as we read this ancient text? And I want to share with us just three. And the first is that we need to guard the truth of the gospel. As I've explained, the church in Ephesus was made up of people from all different faith traditions. You had disciples of John the Baptist. You had Jews. You had followers of Artemis. You had people who were just into intellectualism and that was their God or consumerism. And while most of them abandoned their traditions... And embrace the gospel. As I mentioned early, a lot of them blended the two and tried to take the others away from the truth and say, in order to be saved, you need to do this and this. Now, while that was true in Ephesus, that's also true for us here at Hope Chapel. We have people that come from many different traditions. We have Baptists here. We have Charismatics here. We have Presbyterians here. We have non-denominational folks here. We have people from um, atheist backgrounds. We have people that are agnostic in their prior, um, until they came to Christ that are here. Many different faith traditions. And as it was a temptation in the church of Ephesus to take our faith traditions and not completely abandon them, but kind of merge them with the gospel and then begin to preach that amongst us, that temptation faces us today. 
And you're thinking, that, that, could never, that could never happen. But when I was <coughs> on staff, or when I was a student with InterVarsity at Carolina, um, there was a group of, of students that had come out of a charismatic tradition. And they were in the chapter, and that was fine. We had charismatics, we had Baptists, we had Presbyterians, you, know, you name it, we had it. And <coughs> they professed faith in Christ, they were followers of him. But this group of folks from the charismatic church began to try to tell others, students, that in order to really be a follower of Christ, they needed to have the second baptism of the Spirit. Now, I'm not going to get into the merits or, or, or whether that's good or bad or true or whatever. That's, that's irrelevant. But what's relevant was it really confused a lot of students. And those who were more existentially based and experiential, they gravitated toward it and said, yes, I want to be baptized again and, and all of this. But others were like, I don't think that's true. I don't think you have to, to have a second baptism in order to be a follower of Christ. And it was a huge fight. And I remember Michelle Mallard, who's the, the wife of David Mallard, who used to be at Grace Community Church. She was a staff worker there, and she handled it with such love and sensitivity and discernment to go into that fellowship and to bring them back to the truth and to help them see how they were assimilating the two, their faith tradition with the gospel. And how you don't need to have a second baptism in order to be a follower of Jesus. We're Presbyterian here. We believe in infant baptism. But if you ever, ever, ever hear me say that you have to have your babies baptized in order for you to really be a true follower of Christ, then you need to call me out on it and confront me and use your discernment and rebuke me. We have folks here that are Baptist and believe that you have to be dunked, right? That's part of the, the Baptist tradition. But if you begin to, to say to others that in order to be a true follower of Christ, you have to be dunked, then we need to use discernment and to call you out on that. And others of us, maybe we didn't come from the church, but we came from science and, and, and all that was important, and climate change. That's the most important thing. And so you're a Christian, and in order to be a true follower of Christ, you've got to believe in climate change. If you, if you don't, you're not a true follower of Christ. It's very subtle how these things kind of come into the church. And if that's the case, then we need to go and, and genuinely and lovingly confront. We need to guard the truth of the gospel. We often think that, that it gets distorted by, you know, grandiose ways, but it's not. It's very subtle ways that we ourselves, myself, over the years have been guilty of saying, well, in order to be a follower of Christ, you have to have a quiet time every day. If you're not having a quiet time, you're really not a follower of Christ. Now, I might not say that, but I actually felt that as a young believer, and that's just wrong. That's heresy. That's being a false teacher. Jesus Christ lived and died. So that those of us who profess faith in him might have new life. 
Our justification is by faith alone, period. That is the gospel message. And from within the church and from outside the church, we're getting bombarded and that message can easily be distorted. It happened in Ephesus and it can happen here. And so the first implication for us as a church is that we need to guard the gospel message. The second implication is that we need to work to keep our affections set on Christ. Now, when I just said the word work, to keep our affections set on Christ, some of you, the hair on the back of your neck just kind of bristled up right there, Um, and especially in light of what I just said. Now, I'm not saying that we need to work in order to be saved. We are saved by grace through faith. But... We are called to be obedient. And what we read in this letter this morning is that many in the church in Ephesus, they had lost their affection for Jesus. They had become disinterested, apathetic, bored with him. And so for us to avoid succumbing to the same fate, we can't just sit back and do the same old, same thing in our relationship with Jesus. Like in our marriages, we need to have date nights with Christ. We need to steal away to the mountains, just you and Jesus. We need to practice the spiritual disciplines of meditation on God's word and of prayer and fasting. We need to have our own individual relationship, as as Daniel talked about earlier, with the Lord. And it's work. It's work to stir our affections. But as we do those things, Christ will come and he'll meet us and he'll overwhelm us with his love and his grace and he'll soften our hearts and the boredom that's there, he'll melt and the apathy will dissipate and we'll find that flame and that love that we first had when we met him growing again. And so I wonder this morning, Are you bored with Jesus? Do you find yourself apathetic in your heart toward him? Is your intimacy with him something that you don't really care about? Yeah, you you know all the right things. You you can debate truth all, all you want. You've got your theology down pat. But when it comes to just sitting And being still with Jesus and letting him wrap his arms around you and just hold you. You're like, I don't want to do that. In this letter, he's he's calling out, he's crying for us to grow our affections toward him. And we simply need to ask him to help us do the work of restoring our affections and trust that he is going to meet us. Like in the movie, Life is a House, our father does not simply want us to like him. He wants us to love him with all of our hearts, all of our souls, in all of our minds. 
And so the first (laughs) implication is that we need to guard the gospel message. Secondly, we need to work to keep our affections set on Christ. And third and lastly, we need to remember the joy set before us. You might be discouraged as you reflect on your own heart and wonder how in the world, how can I guard the gospel in the church and in our society? How can I rekindle my love for Jesus? He's not even here. You know, I can't feel him. I can't touch him like I can my wife or my friend or my family member. And the good news is the answer is found In the last verse of the letter, Jesus ends the letter speaking about the joy that is awaiting those who overcome. What is this joy? It is the joy of being restored in Eden, paradise, with God and with our brothers and sisters forever and ever and ever. And just as the author of Hebrews says that for the joy set before him, Jesus endured the cross and now seated at the right hand of God. The joy of knowing that we will be with him forever in paradise will enable us to do the hard work of sanctification. Paul says it this way in 2 Corinthians 4, 16 through 18. So we do not lose heart, though our outer self is wasting away. Our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison as we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. Now as for gardening... I soon discovered that spring and summer that my flowers needed to be deadheaded often for them to maintain their magnificent beauty. Lent is a season in the church calendar in which we have the privilege of inviting the Holy Spirit to deadhead the things in us that are decaying. The ways in which we might be distorting the gospel ourselves. The boredom that might have set in in our relationship with Christ. And as we let the Holy Spirit prune us during this Lenten season, we can rest assured that a new flower will bloom. Beauty will be restored. And no matter how painful the process is for us, We can endure, we can persevere because of the joy set before us. The knowledge, the promise that one day Jesus will come back. He'll make all things new and we'll be with him forever and ever and ever and ever and ever. Amen.